Hey everyone, welcome back to America's Game. This is episode two. I am your host, Eric Vanek. You can find me at, at Eric Vanek NFL on Twitter. And I'm here with uh, my great co-host, Scott Connor. Scott, how's it going, man? We made it to a second episode. I'm shocked I know. they let us come back and uh, do a second one after that first one was a, you know, a marathon of almost an hour and a half. So yeah, glad to be here, man. I didn't get us canceled, man. Can you uh, believe it? Not, I, not yet. Not yet. Not, yeah, give it a few days. So Let's hope we can it. last until the season before that happens. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a good possibility of that. But hey, did you also know what day today is? It's July 20th. Yeah, it's also co-host appreciation day. So I oh. wanted to give I wanted to give you some sh- a shout out and that I appreciate you, man. I know some other hosts in the podcast world didn't do that this week, so I just wanted to make sure you felt. You know, you're welcome and appreciated, man. I feel very special. Thank you for that. And thank you for turning me on to a new holiday that I had no no idea actually existed or a new, new celebration. There's a day for everything. So I appreciate yeah. it. And I just made that shit up anyways for the bit. Anyways, <laughs> welcome in everybody. Uh, today, what are we going to talk about? Today, we're going to talk about some values of players and their current ADPs and some strategies uh, that we can do with that type of thing. So, you know, you you were talking about pre-show a little bit about some uh, discussion you had with the Destination Devi group last night about values of players and their ADPs and maybe some warps as well. If you don't know what warp is, that's wins over replacement. Um, so that that's a new thing that Adiko is really not new thing, but Adiko has put out that info for all of us to kind of digest. And, and we can talk about that a little bit too and see where, you know, what will, when we look at the warp value charts, what we should be looking for and how to interpret it. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. Yeah. And it's something that it's not new to dynasty or it's not new to fantasy, but I think it's new to dynasty in terms of application, because if you think about warp and if you think about the, just the basic premise of this, what is you're trying to measure the impact of players on your team. And there's obviously more that goes into that as just how many points per game did they score? I mean, if you think about, I've, I've given this example on Dynasty and Chill tons of times, but if you think of your Dynasty League as it's a it's a math formula, eventually there's an answer. The answer being, you know, who's going to score the most points at the end of the year? There's a lot of variables within that too. And there's a lot of things that actually act as like constraints or parameters, things we talk about all the time. You know, what are the starting lineups? What are the scoring? What are the roster limits? What are the rules? All those things have minor impacts in terms of like how impactful a player might be to your team. But then you bring in dynasty because there's been, there's been warp data and win rate data that's been out there for redraft forever for a decade. Like I've been reading about it since 2015, 2016 and stuff. But then to translate it to dynasty though, because dynasty has this extra layer of there's value that has, that goes above and beyond what happens this year, right? There's draft picks, there's future value on players, there's resell value. We're always thinking about players, not just as, well, how many points do they score? We're thinking about them as, well, how many points can I score? But then how much can I maybe resell this player back and still get the points, right? Like the, the idea almost being like you're renting a player for a year. If I could tell you, Eric, you can trade for a player and it's going to cost you X, you can get 
X amount of impact in terms of fantasy points on your team and then turn around and trade that same player for X, you basically got free points, right? Like you essentially got free points because you, you rented the player for a year and you traded them for exactly what you paid a year later. And that's the difference in Dynasty is that we're always thinking about things in present value, future value, and then trying to maneuver that with what is their actual impact on my team right now? Because the goal ultimately is still to score fantasy points, regardless if you have the most valuable team or you have the most valuable players, it has to translate within those constraints on your team. Like I'm in a league where it starts 11 players. And we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. It doesn't matter if you have 24 stud players on your team. If you can only start 11, you really only have so far that you can get to where you're guaranteeing yourself that the 11 that you put in the lineup during the playoffs are going to win for you. There's still a level of variance in there that you cannot solve for. But I think we can make up a lot of that in Dynasty, taking away from some of these redraft principles and just saying, you know, these are the ways we can optimize my team build and optimize where I'm storing the equity and the player value in my given roster at a certain time. So we'll get into that. And how do you kind of take advantage of the fact that it's not that nobody knows about this, but I don't think anybody is actually looking at it as basic as this when it comes to dynasty. We're much more focused on, well, what is this player worth in future picks? And, you know, that that's really all we're looking at. We're not actually measuring a player's warp value necessarily, which sometimes that, that comes down to how you construct your team. And if I tell you, Eric, you're only allowed to have this type of construction, that's actually going to limit the type of players that you're even going to go for or you're going to want on your team because you already know what the current dynasty landscape looks like. So we'll get into that. I know I was long-winded on that that initial kind of opening, but I think it, there's something that you can exploit. We're always looking for like the next level thinking to get ahead of the masses because you would agree the masses are getting smarter, right? We've talked about that. Yeah, for Your sure. average Joe in our leagues are not they're not falling for the same fish moves and the same sucker trades that they might've three or four years ago. Generally there's a process behind a lot more people's thinking now than there was even three or four years ago. You were giving me an example of talk about the trade you were talking about with DK. About- yeah, so, so last night I tried in a league, um, I tried to give up DK Metcalf and another receiver. I believe I was Van Jefferson to get JSN who's a Debbie player or, you know, one of the highly ranked receivers coming out next year, most likely, and Jahan Dotson. So I was trying to tear down a little bit from DK, who's still valued as a top 10 receiver in Dynasty, and try and get JSN, who isn't in the league yet, but I think once he comes into the league next year, he might actually be valued higher than DK Metcalf when he comes in, which I believe will probably happen is if, if JSN gets the draft capital that we think he's going to get, he's going to be a top 10 draft pick in the NFL next year. I think JSN vaults above DK Metcalf in dynasty, especially if the Seahawks don't get another quarterback, if they're next year, you know, they're, they're middle of the pack or whatnot, and they're not in the sweepstakes to draft CJ Stroud or Bryce young and their quarterback position doesn't really improve that much. I think DK's value is just going to keep going down and down and down, but I'm trying to like cash out on his value now as a top 10 wide receiver to maybe get somebody that I think could vault him next year, hoping that, you know, my trade partner that I'm trying to do it with maybe doesn't think that way and just sees DK Metcalf's name in there and says, Oh, that's awesome. 
And then on the second part of the trade is trading another wide receiver, a threshold wide receiver in Van Jefferson to, you know, upgrade that spot. And then in a year, I think I end up winning both sides of the trade. So that was kind of my thinking with that one. Yeah. And I think it's a brilliant thought to think about it from that perspective of like, I'm forecasting what I think JSN's value is going to be. And this, this does not at all, a lot of people would stop you and go, JSN is unproven, Eric. JSN could be a bust in the NFL, Eric. Right. And you're, you're not even getting to that thought point when you propose that trade. You're just figuring I'm taking a, what I perceive to be a neutral move asset wise. Mm -hmm. I'll worry about it next year. Like you, you're okay holding JSN into next year. Now, what are the odds you are able to spot JSN being a bust before he's a bust? Probably pretty low, but at least you buy your time to where he's going to be on my roster next year. And if I have a trade in front of me next year where I can move him, the other way for another receiver that, you know, think of it this way. What if it sounds like T Higgins is going to leave the Bengals after next year? You may be able to move him for T Higgins next year. You know what I mean? And right. you're like, essentially you swapped out DK Metcalf and T Higgins. It was a year apart. You could almost say that's kind of a neutral swap, but you ended up with an upgrade at the Van Jefferson to Jahan Dotson. Right. So you're doing some forecasting, but you're trying to hide the perception of where those players are valued in the two for two and basically say, okay, I'm willing to take the perceived loss on one end and bet that that loss is less than the value I'm going to gain on the other move, which will be the Van Jefferson for Jahan Dotson side. And you're, you're just banking that the other manager, he might even look at Metcalf and go, ah, you know, I like him over JSN, but I don't, you know, he might be value or looking at it the same way as you. Mm-hmm. but he doesn't get to the same end point to where he's like, okay, I'm comfortable taking this trade. He hasn't thought it through like three or four layers like you have. And though, and then he just does, he just declines because he doesn't see the obvious reason for him to pull the trigger. So I'm, I want to challenge you on this point too. going a little bit deeper part of the psychology. And this was before I showed you the warp data that Adiko posted from 2015 to 2021, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the psychology of why you would make that trade is because without even knowing the data, you're pretty confident based on what you know about the Seahawks this year and what you know about their situation and DK's situation, you're pretty confident that even if he is good and he maintains his value, his impact on your team in terms of what he's going to contribute in 2022, the reason you were even willing to trade him away because he probably falls in like that non-difference making receiver range, right? Yes, I agree. So like, even if someone were to say JSN is going to be the next Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase, right? Mm -hmm. And you had to trade away an equivalent producing player to get that player, right? So let's say I also told you DeAndre Swift was going to score 23 points per game. Now, I, you're in a year, you're going to get the next Chase or Jefferson. You'd probably have a lot harder time, though, trading away a guy you know or you project to be 
a massive win rate player for your team this year, right? Right, yes. So, like, because this was a lower tier in your mind of where you were trading DK away from, kind of like the non-difference making, like DK could be wide receiver 20. But we also know from the warp data, the difference between wide receiver 12 and wide receiver 20 and wide receiver 30 isn't massive. You're comfortable trading away players in that range. Whereas if we start talking about the players at the very, very high end of the warp range, you're, you're much more hesitant to move them in dynasty because of that one year impact that you could get. Right. So I think that kind of speaks to what we're talking about. And we'll, we'll go into the warp data a little bit more, but part of your psychology was DK was in a, just a, a valuable asset, but kind of just a guy range for this year. And we also know that if he's just a guy in 2022, he may maintain his value next year, but it's not going to get to a point where this is a guy I can't part with on a team. I want to have exposure to him, but I'm not going to just not part with him because he's one of the few 12 to 15 to 20 difference maker players in the league. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, when we were talking about this warp data, and if you look at wide receiver 12 compared to wide receiver 36, wide receiver 12 is about like a 0.6 warp compared to wide receiver 36 is like a 0.4. Like there's just not much difference between 12 and 36, honestly, compared, you know, with this data. And this data goes from 2015 to 2021 and using weeks 1 to 16. So, you know, it's a you know, pretty decent sample size of six years there. So, you know, pretty interesting takeaways from this one too. And then you look at the, uh, the running backs as well, you know, the RB one's almost a one and a half warp compared to like running back 12 is a 0.6. That's a huge difference. That's a, you know, a whole, almost a whole um, win above replacement there. That's just crazy. Well, and I think you made a great point with the wide receiver 12 through wide receiver 36. I mean, we'll post a link to the tweet and the chart. And there's a bunch of them in there. It's not just this one, but we're using one that that's covering basically seven years worth of data from 2015 to 2021. And, but just for example purposes, so we can put names and let people kind of picture this in their mind. So you mentioned wide receiver 12 is around 0.6 warp. So essentially the difference is about two tenths of a win between wide receiver 12 and wide receiver 36. And we're talking finish values here. So this obviously doesn't translate specifically to like week to week because any given week we know a receiver can spike up and have a 30 point game and that's going to that's going to bump his average up for the season. But just generally taking away from this I'll use DLF's ADP. I don't have a Decos pulled up. Who is wide receiver 12 in DLF ADP? And I'll just get, I'll tell you if you don't get it within a couple seconds, but uh, I probably guess it's probably like around DK Metcalf range. Yeah, so you're close. He is wide receiver 11. Uh, wide receiver 12 is Michael Pittman. Okay. Wide receiver 36 is Allen Robinson. Okay? okay. So in your head, when I give you those two names, for redraft, you could probably justify kind of like, eh, I don't really have a preference. I'd rather probably have Pittman, but it isn't like you're going to go out of your way to get one or the other in redraft, right? They're kind of going to occupy the, a similar spot on your team. Probably your wide receiver two wide receiver three, maybe your wide receiver one, mm-hmm. but they're kind of going to be just in one of your starting receiver spots, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of where, you know, where you take them off the board. The difference in dynasty though, is we have this extra layer of, okay, Eric, Michael Pittman is 25. Allen Robinson is 29. 
or they will be when the season starts. Both of them will have a birthday in the next couple months. So you're also giving up within that range. You've already acknowledged that, man, that's probably a good move if I can trade the wide receiver 12 for the wide receiver 36 and the difference I get in the piece that you also give me to make that, that down swap is worth my while, right? Like you don't right. see a major impact on your on your dynasty team because both those guys are probably going to be in your lineup every week. Yeah? Right. But also in dynasty now you have to factor in you're giving up also the four years with Michael Pittman. So part of what you're paying for when you go from Allen Robinson to Michael Pittman is part of it is maybe some upside, but I'm not sure Michael Pittman has upside to crack any higher than really where he is right now, you know? So really what you're paying for in that is you get to make this decision probably two or three more years with Michael Pittman because he's probably going to maintain similar value as long as he produces in this warp range, if that makes sense. So really you're giving up the years. So in Dynasty, how do you view this differently when you insert two players like that where you're not only giving up a very small warp difference, which you've already accepted you're okay giving you know that spot up, but you also have to rectify that with, I'm giving up four years worth of age. How, how do you rectify that? I mean, how, how do you talk through that? Because I think that's where people don't use this in Dynasty as much because they're not as comfortable pivoting because generally values with players in Dynasty is going to be reflective of their age and their upside too, which clearly we can say Robinson probably, you'd agree Robinson's not going up in value much, even if he has a good year. He's probably just going to be like staying in this wide receiver 30 to 40 range or whatever. Could go up maybe a slight bit higher, but it's not like he's going to blow up no matter what he does. Yeah, he's not going to he's not going to jump from 36 to like 16 or even 25, you know, somewhere in that range. I don't think he moves up that much, no. So dissect this trade though. Like is that a trade in dynasty where if someone came to you and said, "I'll give you Allen Robinson and I'll make it interesting. Allen Robinson in a 24 first, and you give me Michael Pittman in your 23 second. Mm-hmm. And there's some correlation there too, because if you really are convicted in the move, you're not really looking at this like you're losing much points between Pittman and Robinson. So you don't think that that swap is really making your team any worse. So you may feel comfortable to give up your 23 second. Yeah. I mean, you know, next year, looking at it if you're on the clock like you're on the clock for that 23 201 you know is is somebody going to be willing to give you that 2024 first for it straight up now we didn't see it in last year's draft at all like to get a 2023 first you would have had to given up like 101 or 102 you know to even get that so you know thinking about even having a 201 to get a, a next year's first for that was not happening this year at all, but next year, could it happen? It it could, it depends on how deep this draft is. You know, a lot of people are talking up this draft to see how it goes, but with this trade, I'd probably be willing to do something like that because like I said, I don't see much difference this year between Allen Robinson and Pittman. It could be, you know, the difference is what, maybe 150 yards, a hundred yards, you know, the touchdowns could be similar, you know, maybe both of them get eight touchdowns. I could see Pittman having more catches though. I could see Pittman being a 90 to a hundred catch guy where Allen Robinson might be 80 to 90 catches. So you're losing, you know, what, 15, 20 points there and catches, but you're not losing that much and you get a first on top of it. So I, I definitely like that trade on the uh, Allen Robinson first side. Well, and there's a there's a second component to that. You mentioned the 201. 
Mm. Yeah, I'll just use that as an example. But go right, ahead. right, and and I think the idea is you actually have some built-in insurance there too, because if you clearly were worried at all that your pick was going to be the two hundred one. This is probably not necessarily the type of trade you're wanting to pursue because those years on Pittman are more valuable probably to you than they would be to make this trade, if that makes sense. So I think that's part of what goes into the psychology of this is you're probably comfortable, even if that pick ends up being the 206, 207, you're definitely not getting a future first for that pick, barring that this class is just absolutely blows it out of the water. You know what I mean? So you're definitely getting... You already can say with very, very high certainty that you are getting the pick upgrade, no matter right. what happens. Right. Worst case scenario would be it's the 112 in 2024 and it's the 201 in 2023. Mm-hmm. But you're probably sitting there going like, if I'm thinking my team at all could be the 201, I probably value my 23 second a lot higher than anybody else in this league in the in general. So this is probably not the pick I'm wanting to throw in a trade like this. Right. So just the fact that you're interested in making a move and giving up these four years probably means you're fairly confident that yours is not going to be the 201. It's probably going to be 205, 206, or, or lower. Correct. And if you just think about this one singular deal, how many different places, if, if I just told you, hey, go through this warp data and spot the flat areas where you spotted the 0.6 and the 0.4. Mm-hmm. And then just go and look at the ADP and find different pivots where you could try to extract moves like this. Like, I don't think you and I have the time to put in this work in our dynasty teams. But if you gave me just unlimited time, I could probably go through and literally spam 500 trades like this. If I'm completely agnostic and I'm completely like, don't really care which players I end up with more or less exposure on. But just stick to these principles when I'm looking at these deals. I mean, you, there's a lot of value to be had. You know, there's just not enough hours in the day to go through all 40 of your teams and be like, okay, let me propose, you know, 70 warp pivot trades. You know what I mean? But the psychology is there. It's right. there. And in the value gain on your side, there, let me ask you this that trade, the Pittman for Robinson trade. Name a scenario where you would lose that trade. Just in your head, like what would hold you back from hitting accept on that trade, even for five minutes? What would be your fear? That Pittman, you know, does take another step even above what we saw last year and becomes even more than what I thought he could be. You know, he could end up being that, you know, with Matt Ryan, he ends up having 90, 100 catches, 1300 yards, has 12 to 15 touchdowns because there's nobody else really to throw the ball to there. That would probably be one of my concerns. Do I think that's likely to happen? Probably not, but it is a possibility. Right. So basically Pittman blows up and he all of a sudden is one of these massively valued dynasty receivers that jumps an even higher tier in the warp where maybe he's up in the, you know, Debo, type range where he's scoring 20 points per game. And you're like, man, I actually just traded away. What? Like a warp difference maker, you know, like a guy that actually can really contribute to me winning my, my league. And the bonus to that would be if that happens, that's also going to spike his dynasty value, which means you probably sold him 20, 30% below his market value of what it will be next year. Right. So the guy that traded for him, not only would get the massive warp season, 
he would now be holding a massively high-end trade asset next year, which he could choose to move. It's the same with Debo. I brought up Debo. I didn't even think of Debo until that example. But if you rode out Debo's year last year and you got the 21 points per game that he scored, and you're now able to trade him at wide receiver five prices, mm-hmm. you crushed that deal, right? Oh, you yeah, crushed it because sure. you're, du- you're winning double. You, you got his points already, and you're kind of trading him away at his peak price. But you're not just trading him away at his peak price. You already got a massive impact that he gave you on your team for one year. Mm-hmm. So if you can strategically trade away that player and he falls down a tier, you smashed. Correct. Yeah. So, so I think that's kind of the thought process behind this. And I guess the worst case scenario, let's say Pittman stays with what he is, right? He's just yeah. kind of like a mid-tier wide receiver too. He's young. People want him. He's a decent liquid trade asset. But then Allen Robinson completely bombs. Barely usable. You know, nine points per game. Right. Do you even still still feel as horrible about that trade if that happens? You feel much worse if the first example happens, right? And you trade it away like the golden boy asset. Yeah. But even sure. if Allen Robinson flames out, you still got a future first for a a flat warp range player. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, because you're not you're not losing much between the two at all. Right. You I mean you probably lost the deal. But you didn't lose the deal as much as, you know, you can gain if they just become equal. Right. I think that's the key. So if you don't want to do a pivot like this, this leads into my next topic of looking at this warp data and saying, doesn't it make sense if you go into these flat ranges? Are you always thinking about trades in those flat ranges where let's say you find a team, Eric, where you have four top 20 running backs, but none of them are difference makers. Doesn't it kind of make sense to go through and turn maybe one of those running backs right now into a future first just to kind of mitigate some of your risk that they don't get hurt or they don't underperform and then they're never worth a first again? Like, doesn't that kind of strategy also make sense where if you have a kind of a good team or a team you think you maybe have some excess pieces to kind of just collect some future firsts and then hope that maybe you can use those first at a later time when you have more information to, to buy some more like warp during the season, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. You can try and, and do that. You know, I'm always, you know, always down for, you know, getting extra first um, for the following year. Here, here's another one that I'll, I'll bring up while you were mentioning that. If you have four of them, would you be willing to take two of them and tear up to go for like a top three warp running back? Like, a, you know, Najee Harris or Javante Williams you know, Swift and, you know, maybe you're taking Nick Chubb and Antonio Gibson or something like that and and tearing up to maybe try and get one of those guys. Would you be willing to do that? Or would you rather have the first? Yeah, it's an interesting question and it's going to lead to our next topic too, because this is where the running back position is where the dynasty value and the warp value is the furthest apart. Meaning that we value Javante Williams largely because we feel confident that his situation is not going to get any worse and or it's not going to change for at least a couple years. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing to say Javante Williams is ever going to be more than a 
0.3, warp running back. So if he's not, and he ends up just being like right now, we were looking at this chart and saying a guy like Nick Chubb for his career has averaged like 15.6 points per game or something for his career, 15.06. I don't remember exactly what it is, but he's right around like the 15 point per game mark. Historically, that's going to be about 0.7 warp, right? But if I told you Javante Williams would have Nick Chubb's career, you'd probably be like, I'll take that. Right. But yet that conflicts with his dynasty value because his dynasty value says he's RB4 or RB3 or whatever the hell he is. Mm. But clearly that's that's above probably what his warp deserves that he's valued at. So really, no, I wouldn't want to tear up to a guy like Javante or maybe you can throw Brees Hall in there. But again, he's a rookie. Mm. Even if they end up with like Nick Chubb's career, the impact that that had on your team is not nearly as significant, even over a three or four year period that you would get Javante's quote unquote situation security. That is not nearly as valuable as if you can trade for Austin Eckler and he scores 21 a game. Right. That one year of getting Aaron Jones or Austin Eckler or Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey or Saquon Barkley, I'd rather do that, which I think changes the dynamics of your trade. And I think that speaks to something that you can probably do. I mean, I think a guy like Aaron Jones is attainable. For sure. The question is, you know, you're buying basically a one-year coin flip that he hits that warp value because you know he's not going to retain any of the value unless he hits that number. And even if he hits that number, he's not going to be a trade asset that's any easier to move a year from now than he is right now. So that becomes the question. I'm going to flip the question on you. I agree with you. If you can move from Gibson or Dobbins or someone like that and get up to Javante or Najee, because Najee's a tough one because he's probably like more like a one warp player but I don't know if he has an extreme ceiling. I think you'd probably agree with that. He doesn't have like a 22, 23 point per game ceiling. He's probably like a, like, I don't think Najee ever gets to a year like JT had last year. So who, who would be the running backs you think could, could do that? I think, you know, Taylor for sure. McCaffrey for sure. I, probably I think Swift, Eckler, Barkley. I think it's probably Camara, McCaffrey, Barkley, Swift, Eckler, Aaron Jones. Honestly, yeah, I, I think those are the names. And it, this is why it's an interesting question because all of those guys are priced lower than what their potential warp for even one year is. Right. And part of the reason is because people go, well, it's only a one-year shot. They're not comfortable moving from even a guy like Swift. Now, Swift's different because he's probably got two or three years, right? Yeah. People are not comfortable moving from Javante Williams to... Aaron Jones, because they look at Javante and they go, man, even if he's only Nick Chubb, that's nice to have for three or four more years. If Aaron Jones isn't the one or higher warp player in 2022, he's now, I can't get shit for him. Yeah, He's dead. So it is a high risk maneuver, but I think for a one season build, if you can maintain some dynasty principles on the other parts of your roster, I think there is a lot of profit to be made if you hit on the right ones. So yes, I'm interested. I don't necessarily want to move Javante or Brees Hall, but if I can move from that tier below where people are still valuing the youth of 
J.K. Dobbins or Elijah Mitchell, or, you know what I mean? I think it is possible to get to an Eckler or an Aaron Jones with one of those guys. Turn it to you, though. What are you adding? Because knowing this warp data, if I said you have to give a 23 first and Elijah Mitchell to get Austin Eckler, are you hesitant on that deal? I probably would be, yes, but I'm also a lot higher than on Elijah Mitchell than a lot of people, so that's probably the wrong person. Okay, pick pick another very low upside, low warp RB2. Probably like a Josh Jacobs. Okay, Josh Jacobs. And who would be the most attainable, do you think, in that list of running backs? I'll omit Swift because I still think people see him as he has multiple years to where he's going to hold his value. But all the other guys are like in their fifth year or or further, and they all have some sort of risk. Who would be the most attainable? Probably Jones and Eckler? Yeah, I was going to say Jones. Yeah, Aaron Jones probably. Okay. I'd I'd probably say Aaron Jones and Kamara. I think people – Kamara, yes. Kamara as high as Eckler. Okay, so let's hone in on those two. Okay. You're you're given Jacobs. What do you add? Because I think if you have to add a first – What's really driving your psychology to not accept that trade is that you got to give up the first. You don't give a fuck about Josh Jacobs versus Aaron Jones or Alvin Kamara. You'd take that pivot all day, but you probably don't want to give up the first in your first offer, right? Yeah, especially a 2023 first with how they're valued right now. Now, and why is it that you don't want to give up the first? It's not because you don't value. You clearly acknowledge the difference in potential warp between Alvin Kamara and Josh Jacobs, right? Yes. You just don't think buying that lottery ticket is worth a first. And part of that is, if I told you that it was going to happen, you'd pay the first. Correct, yeah. Right? But you don't know because it could be like seven or eight guys that it could be. And if you don't pick the right one, then you gave away the first. But really what your mindset is saying is you actually think you can maybe do something different with that first. So you don't want to give it up in this type of trade. But it's a trade you're interested in making, so I'll turn it to you. What would you add? How would you go about proposing that trade? Yeah, I'd probably have to give up this, a second instead, but you know, will the other owner be willing to take Jacobs in a second for Jones or Kamara? Probably not. So I'm probably going to have to add more to it. I'd probably have to give them another type of swap somewhere, like in you know a wide receiver swap somewhere where they're getting the better wide receiver. You know, say I'm I'm giving them my Traylon Burks and I'm getting back, you know, Amon Ross St. Brown, something like that. Okay, how about we use both of our deals combined? You give them Michael Pittman and Josh Jacobs and a second. They give you Kamara and Allen Robinson. That could have some appeal, right? Because they see, well, they're getting the second and they're getting the upgrade, the, the, the upgrade at wide receiver. Mm-hmm. Yet you already know that if you just balance out those warp points, you're still getting more warp points potentially on your team. And all you have to do is basically pay the second, right? Pay the second, right. Correct. So I think the optics of sending that trade with Jacobs in a second, you're right. You could send Jacobs in a second, Gibson in a second. For every one of those guys we named, Barkley, Kamara, McCaffrey, Jones, Eckler, I would almost guarantee almost all of them get rejected. Yep. And that's not because these people you're trying to send the deal to are familiar with the warp data. Just in their mind, that is a not enough upside with either of the assets that they're getting to make that move. 
But if you combine it and you throw in the wide receiver upgrade in there, you're kind of hiding that little extra wide receiver up there upgrade in that trade to make it look more respectable for you to get the trade done, right? Yeah. So let me ask you this. Let's say you have three 23 first round picks. You already know you have some leverage with those 23 picks. Would you do Jacobs in a 24 first for just one of these running backs? And knowing I have the three 2023 20, first in the bank. Correct. You well, you or and or you have a really strong team where you think it's a position where you can kind of go against the leverage and you give up the two for one. But mm. if you hit, you hit on almost a guaranteed difference maker in terms of the warp in your lineup. I mean, you right. hit a 20 point per game running back season and you have a semi good team, mm-hmm. then there's a really good chance that you take home the championship, or at least you're right there in the mix. And you can give up the 24 because you're like, well, I have a couple 23s and I don't have to dip into my 23s to make this move, which you already said clearly you wouldn't want to do. Right. Man, that's that's definitely tough. I probably would consider it, though, for the 2024 first. I think that makes you know, a little more sense just of the way that my team would be built that way. And, you know, 2023, I feel fine. If I had those extra picks, I can make up for it then. And I still have time to reacquire a 2024 first in the future, you know, if I give up somebody else. So I'm not too worried about the 2024 first in that aspect. I feel like I can, you know, acquire one next year or during this season if things don't break my way either. So what's your process the rest of the the way until we get to the season approaching your teams? Like, are you going to think about this a little bit differently now and look at your teams and go, man, this is a pretty strong team. Where can I maybe make some of these trades that either shift me into the right direction or even, I mean, I know, I know I'm in some leagues with you. I know you have some really good teams. There, There's some teams where you probably have a top two or three team already. You can actually afford to like, shave off some of the excess off the top and try to make some of these trades and where you kind of kick the can forward to where it doesn't really change your impact of whether you can win or not next year. Like you already have a team that is in position to win, but if you got Josh Jacobs as your RB three, even if you're the best team in the league, it kind of makes sense to go try to trade him away and get one of these trades where you can get some flexibility back. Even if you think, Oh, well that's going to hurt me depth wise it actually makes sense to move him for the same discussion that we've just had and try to just liquidate him for, you know, a future pick where maybe you can make a more flexible move in the future. Right. No, that's definitely something I could look at um, on my teams. I know I have Jacobs on a few. I have Elijah on a few. Uh, Zeke on a few. So, I, yeah, you know, those types of guys where you can move up to to do this kind of a warp move. Yeah, that's definitely something I, I should be considering. And it's not just that at running back too. I I think quarterback's a little harder to trade, but wide receiver definitely. And even, you know, the tight ends, like, uh, you know, kind of switching gears just a little bit, like even the tight end warp is just huge. You go from tight end one is a full one game warp compared to tight end 12 is like a 0.35. So, you know, that's kind of where, you know, that's a huge difference between tight end one and tight end 12. You know, I kind of want to look even tight end six is is a point five compared to tight end one as a one. 
if I'm getting one of these top five tight ends, you know, that just makes a huge difference. But you also brought up a good point in the pre-show too. Like you kind of want to get one of those tight ends in the seven to 12 range that you think could become a top five and, you know, make your profit that way. So, you know, kind of explain what you were thinking there with that one. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were talking some kind of some redraft. This kind of goes back to just, if you're looking at it in a one year window, I don't necessarily want to pay tight end five or six prices for TJ Hawkinson, because I don't necessarily think he has any better shot of jumping into the top five as like Dawson Knox, you know, like there's not, it's not worth the market price. And we already acknowledge that if they're both just tight end eight and tight end 10, it's very minimal difference. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think one can jump way higher than the other, then that's where you're valuing one over the other in terms of, you know, what price you're going to put on them. But I think the discussion kind of goes more towards like, you know, we didn't mention Travis Kelsey, but this makes Travis Kelsey's basically the tight end version of Christian McCaffrey and Saquon Barkley. But I think the other value that we're not placing on a guy like Kelsey is there is only one Kelsey. There isn't like six or seven guys that you have to go pay for and go, oh, well, which one of these guys is going to stay healthy? You know, which one of these guys is going to recreate these massive warp seasons that they've had in the past? So, so like just that alone, just this data, does it make you say you want to be a little more aggressive on going and getting Kelsey in some of these leagues for the same exact reason? And the other thing is if you get Kelsey, I can't get him. Right. There's really only one. Maybe you could squint and say like Waller could be there, maybe Kittle. But like after that, there's really only a couple options. Then it drops down to like Pitts and Andrews and they're already being valued because of their age and because of their profile. They're, they're not like seen as one or two year rental players. So does this make you want to try to do the same type of deals? Because I'd argue if you hit on a Kelsey in one of these, you know, especially like a 1.75 or two PPR format, like, dude, that's even, that's an even bigger advantage than getting a 20 point per game running back. So does it make you want to go try to get some Kelsey knowing you're probably losing that deal long-term value wise. And when you're talking like reach resell value, right? Yeah. If my team is completely set up to win this year, I'm going for the win this year. If I can add a Travis Kelsey to my team and I give up, you know, if I move up from George Kittle to Kelsey, or I move up from Hawkinson to Kelsey, you know, something like that you know, you're going, you're definitely going for it this year. And it's a huge advantage compared to those other two. You know, what, what would you think you'd have to give up though? And like, if you move TJ Hawkinson for Kelsey, what do you think it would cost? I don't even think you have to go. So if it's me and I already have Hawkinson, Mm -hmm. that's not even the type of move I want to make because I've already kind of placed my chips on Hawkinson, maybe being a guy that it doesn't have to be this year either. But Hawkinson has another three or four years where he has a chance to jump into this, you know, Kittle or Waller or Andrews range. Okay. So that's part of the reason why I wouldn't want to move Kelsey in the deal. But I don't think you have to move. And we're not talking like we're in some leagues where it's like two PPR and start two tight ends. Like they're really hard to move because a lot of times in those leagues when it's like extreme scoring like that and it's start two the teams that have them already kind of realize the value that they have. And it's really hard to find a trade, mm-hmm. but I think in a start one, even in like a 1.75 PPR, I think a guy like Kelsey is attainable, but I don't think you have to give up Hawkinson to get him. I think you can go in a start one 
1.75 PPR. I think if you came with a Trey McBride and a 23 first, you get Kelsey. Interesting. Okay. I, I mean, I think if, if that, if that trade was in your inbox and you're getting Trey McBride in the 23 first, you see that in your inbox and it's a start one, 1.75 PPR. What's the first thing you think of when you get that trade? You don't smash decline it and be like, oh, fuck that offer, right? Like that's a legit right. offer. Right. But then what do you look at? What goes into your mind next? What do you do? I mean, if I'm the Kelsey owner, I'm looking to see, hey, am I a contender this year? You know, do I have a legit shot to, you know, be a top four team, make the playoffs and whatnot? And if not, if I'm still lacking, then, you know, I definitely have to consider that type of offer for sure. Because you're getting the younger asset and tight end who could, I don't want to say he's going to be a top six tight end at some point in his career, but he has a chance. Plus you're getting the 2023 first that's valued very highly. It's something you definitely got to consider. Yeah, exactly. You're getting not only the 23 first, but you're getting a live shot. And we know with these tight ends, especially if they have the profile and the pedigree like McBride, he's going to have multiple years to where he's going to kind of maintain a floor of value where you're always going to be able to sell people on. Well, you know, he's got a shot to jump into that top 12 range, you know, like you just, mm. you're, it's not like he's going to go away overnight if he doesn't have a big rookie year. So that's kind of the benefit of getting a guy like him back in the trade instead of giving back, you know, you, someone could also throw in like, I don't know, David and Joku in that same trade, mm -hmm. but he's also maybe a little riskier in terms of like, there might not be the same runway that Njoku has. He doesn't have four more years to maintain his value if he doesn't do much. If he doesn't jump into the top, you know, eight or better producers, he's not going to be tight end 12 in three years. At some point, he's going to fall down because people are sick of waiting, you know, and, it, and maybe if it's not one more year, it's two more years. So I think that's, you've evaluated it correctly, that you're going to look at your team and you're going to go, unless I'm clearly one of these teams that really needs to bet on this this tight end warp going my way. Let me say, let, let's say you're a middle of the pack team. You can squint and see you can make the playoffs, but you could also see where, you know, you don't have the perfect roster construction. You don't have the perfect team that you're confident in saying top three. Mm -hmm. You probably still consider accepting that trade, right? Yeah, probably for sure. And what's the justification? Well, there's probably not going to be a better offer I ever get for Kelsey. Yeah. Especially if, if, you know, things, you know, he starts hitting the cliff a little bit, you know, it's, we know it's coming soon. He's, he's been so damn elite, you know, for years and years now, but we know that that cliff is coming here soon. Could it be this year? Very well, possibly. I mean, is he going to be the same quick Kelsey that, you know, we've seen, you know, especially with no Tyreek, you know, taking the over top coverage from them. Are they going to key on Kelsey more if they're doubling Kelsey all the time? You know, he might not put up the same numbers that he used to. So that's one thing you have to consider as well. You, you know that age cliff is coming at some point. Am I ever going to get a better offer than a first in Trey McBride for Travis Kelsey? And so that tells me that actionable advice would be, especially if you have Mahomes, I think it's a no-brainer. If you have Mahomes in a league, and I think I have Mahomes on nine teams, I, I need to go to every single one of them. And I think I only have Kelsey on like two of the nine. I need to go every single one of them and see if a move like this potentially is on the table. And what you're looking for is, is Kelsey parked on a roster that is not clearly like a top three or four team. Now you might run into a delusional manager where you look at the team and you're like, well, yeah, that's a bottom four team. 
Mm-hmm. Yet he goes, I'm not trading Kelsey because I'm going to try to win. Okay. You're, you're not going to get that guy to budge. You just move on, right? Right. So whatever you use to kind of gauge the, the general value, I know we use the GM tool with Dynasty Nerds. Uh, there's a couple others that, that people have turned me on to. But whatever you use to approximate like whether you think a team is going to be competitive or not, if, if Kelsey is on a team that is parked in like no man's land or just straight up bad, and for some reason they haven't moved him yet, I think this is the type of trade that you pursue. And I think you do it at running back and tight end as our takeaway from the warp data is like, that's where you're chasing these, these one year bets on the warp is at running back and tight end. If, if you're going to make the big move. Right. So that to end this, and then we'll move into the second part of the show. That's what I want to be shopping strategically to move some of my excess 23 first for, if I can do it, those are the type of deals that I want to be chasing. Right. The ones where I think I'm a playoff team and I can acquire one of these, Yes, I'm taking on a lot of risk. Yes, I'm probably giving away some of my future resale value. But I'm only trading away my 23 firsts in these specific spots, and I'm only going to try to do it if I get the significant warp upside, even for just one year. If I'm not getting that, I really don't want to move my 23 firsts. I don't really care who it's for. Right. I I would say Kelsey and McCaffrey would be the two prime targets there because McCaffrey probably falls in the same type of range that Kelsey does. Yes. And if McCaffrey hits, he's not injured this year. He's definitely like a 23 to 25 point per game player like he usually is. So that's, you know, those are definitely two of the guys that you want to try to go for, especially McCaffrey too. If, if he's been on this owner's team for three, three, four years now, He's had two years of just complete zeros from McCaffrey, and he's probably frustrated as hell as having him and thinks he sucks or he just he's always hurt. I don't want this guy and might be willing to kind of do uh, a deal like that. So that's definitely one you can try as well as with McCaffrey. So just I hate to hate to do this because it'll circle back, but I want to give I want you to give an example of the McCaffrey type of trade, assuming that you do the just like the McBride in a first but it's a running back and a first for McCaffrey. I know before you said you wouldn't do Jacobs in a 23 first, but where would the, where would the tier line be? Would you do like Chubb in a first for McCaffrey? No. Cause I don't, I, I think that you couldn't get, I think you'd get that. That would be accepted most, most cases, okay. but you also said you wouldn't do Jacobs in a first for those other guys. And I don't think there's a big difference. I'm, I'm thinking, where do you start? Like, uh, Rashad White in the 23 first. Yeah, I could do that. So you're thinking even lower then? I think you start even lower. If it gets to the point where they see your Josh Jacobs or your Clyde Edwards Hilaire or even your like Elijah Mitchell or Ezekiel Elliott, and that's the only deal they'll take, mm-hmm. you could justify it. But I think I would definitely do that. Yeah. I mean, I'd almost be willing to do. Like David Montgomery, Antonio Gibson, Leonard Fournette, Zeke for a first, and yeah. you know, Gaffrey, something like that. Yeah, and I think you can start maybe a tier lower by throwing in James Cook in a 23 first, Rashad White in a 23 first, Tony Pollard in a 23 first. Like, start there, but I think that's the appropriate starting offer to where the person is not just going to smash reject it and be like, screw you, we're not trading. Right. Like, they're going to at least sit on that offer and go, hmm. It's not that I like the value you're offering me, Eric, but I like the type of deal. I like where you're going with this offer. Mm -hmm. So let me counter and probably send you a counter that's way more than you're going to pay. 
But at least with the counter, you have now two points. You have a bracket to where you can say, okay, this is what I offered. This is what he offered. If I'm willing to meet in the middle somewhere, we may get a deal done. Correct. So I think that, that's where you start with those types of trades. And I think those are the easiest ones from an optics perspective. Because as right. soon as you send them Rashad White in the 23 first, that guy starts seeing stars in his head. Oh, well, Fournette's overweight, you know? Rashad White could be great. Like He starts actually telling himself that story about how the deal could go his way. Correct. So I think that that kind of speaks to the psychology of these types of trades too. It's very easy for the other person to look at the two for one and go, oh, I can see where this deal could go my way. Let me consider a counter. And maybe the counter is all you have to do is add a third or all you have to do is add some nondescript player. And you're like, oh, fuck it. I'll give away that guy. Mm. So yeah, good exercise. We'll, we'll explore this more in the future as we approach the season for sure. Yeah, no, that's definitely good uh, advice for sure. I, I really hadn't looked at this warp data until you kind of explained it a little bit more to me, and it definitely makes a lot of sense. So you can kind of look at this these charts here and kind of see, you know, what kind of value ranges you could be looking at here. And you'll be surprised, like like I was saying earlier, you know, wide receiver 12 is a 0. 0.6 and wide receiver 36, like a 0. 0.4. There's just not much difference between the wide receiver 12 and the wide receiver 36 yearly from this data. So, you know, if you can, you know, take that wide receiver 12 and tear down to the wide receiver 36, you know, in that range and you, you're not losing much. So that's definitely something really interesting to look at on my teams. Um, but the second part of the show, we'll get into it. So last week, me and Scott tackled the AFC players that we were kind of looking for from training camps and guys that might be on waiver wires that we could go acquire right now and pick up before training camp starts here. You know, We had the Raiders and Jaguars started, I think, yesterday or today. They're starting because they play the, uh, the Hall of Fame game this year. So we got training camps here opening. So let's take a look at some guys from the NFC that we like. And I'll start off first. I got four different guys this week again. So Ty Chandler's first. This is a Vikings draft pick that they drafted at running back. This is one of the guys that Ray turned me on to. He showed me some highlights of him and definitely his uh, combine was really interesting as well. He's one of the fastest running backs at the combine. And when you just watch his tape, man, he is very you know, good with his cuts. He can catch the ball. He can do pretty much everything. He's just a tiny little bit small. He's a 200 pound back, but he's not like, um, you know, small or anything to that nature. So I think there's a chance to where he can become the new Alexander Madison for them. Madison's a free agent at the end of the season. And I would guess that he's probably not going to be back. He was probably going to get a, you know, a better deal somewhere else. But I think Chandler is a guy that you can kind of stash this year, hoping that he becomes that new Alexander Madison because this regime drafted him. They obviously like him and he could become the new, you know, like I said, the new Madison and he can fill in for when Dalvin Cook gets hurt. He can step in and play, play some whenever they need him to. So I, I really like Ty Chandler, really like his game. That's probably my most owned player in Dynasty. So that was one. Next up was Tommy Tremble. Uh, the Carolina tight end. Now, Ian Thomas is listed as a starter right now, but I, I honestly think Tommy, Tommy Tremble is the better player. He's a way better blocker. He came in as one of the most polished blockers in the league last year um, at tight end from the draft. 
he's only going to get better at the receiving game. He's wasn't really used too much in the receiving game at Notre Dame, but he does have the talent. He just needs some more reps and all that from there with Baker Mayfield, Baker Mayfield has thrown the tight ends quite a bit in his career. So I think him and Baker can have a really good chemistry together. So that's somebody I like to keep stashing. And if, you know, somebody dropped him because he didn't really do much last year, definitely picking him up, definitely stashing Tommy Tremble, especially in these two tight end leagues um, and whatnot. Another guy that's probably out there on a lot of waiver wires is Cyril Grayson. And many people are going to think, who the hell is Cyril Grace? Well, he's a Tampa Bay wide receiver. And obviously, Tampa Bay has a lot of receivers behind Evans, Godwin, and Gage. But Cyril Grayson last year, once Antonio Brown had his shenanigans, had his injury, Cyril Grayson was the one who stepped up. It wasn't Scotty Miller who was coming back off injury. It wasn't Brashad Perriman. It wasn't Tyler Johnson. It was Cyril Grayson. And Tom Brady has talked up Grayson a little bit this offseason as well. Um, Just a guy who works really hard. You know, he's not like, you know, Mike Evans Godwin talent, but he's just a really good player. I think he's better than Tyler Johnson. He's better than Scotty Miller. He's better than Brashad Perriman at this point in his career. So Cyril Grayson is a guy that's out there on a lot of waiver wires that pretty much got dropped at the end of the season that you can pick up and stash and see how it goes. He might end up being the fourth wide receiver and, you know, he might not uh, do much in the early or uh, later on in the season once Godwin comes back. But early on in the season, it could be Grayson is like the third receiver behind Gage and Evans. So that's another guy I like stashing. And then the last one is Juwan Jennings from the 49ers. He's gotten a lot of hype and buzz um, in OTAs and minicamp so far. He's worked really hard. He's worked with Trey Lance quite a bit. They've gotten together and done some throwing sessions with the other receivers. And Jennings has just been really, really good. It's a guy that it was a UDFA that they've had for a couple years, and he's kind of blossomed into their number three wide receiver. That's another guy that I found on some waiver wires that I've picked up and stashed because if an injury does happen, you know, Debo's been hurt in the past. If IU gets hurt, I think Jennings could really step in and he could just kind of fill either one of those roles and produce for you on your fantasy team. So those are four guys I like. Um, Scott, go ahead and give us your kind of guys that you're looking at uh, this year from the NFC. Yeah, for the NFC. So a lot of the focus on these types of players and the reason that Eric talks about, you know, we want to roster these guys before training camp or at least throughout the preseason and, and throughout training camp is because we talked about it a little bit last week, too. Like I'm not going to criticize the guys like Cyril Grayson and Jawan Jennings, but especially Jawan Jennings, because Jawan Jennings is almost certain to be the wide receiver three or four on San Francisco, right? Like you already kind of know where he's going to land, but you're also not sure if he's not, if he's just going to end up in like no man's land where he's a roster clogger. So I respect the fact that you've kind of identified, okay, yeah, he, he probably is by definition, a roster clogger. But you can always pick out from the group of roster cloggers across the league, which ones you want to kind of bet on a little more than the others. Which ones are you tolerating keeping on teams? You know, if I told you you'd have the number three receiver on a lot of other teams, like if I told you guaranteed you have the number three receiver on the Seahawks, you don't really care, right? You just cut that guy. They're not worth a roster spot. So yeah. there's there's ones that you're kind of picking out and saying, okay, I'm going to have some conviction among the roster cloggers. Generally, though, I think we're usually saying we're chasing different positions, especially running backs, just because there is some some quick equity that you get. Like the guys I'm going to mention, 
Jashawn Corbin and Matt Breida and Antonio Williams, basically the whole Giants backfield. Last week, I talked about the Colts backfield. The Giants backfield, it's really unsettled. You know, I'm, I'm omitting Gary Brightwell because my personal portfolio, I've cut every Gary Brightwell. I don't think he's necessarily in the mix. I think it's going to be at least one of those other three that is relevant slash usable slash got to have him on dynasty rosters come week one. Now, is that going to be the same guy the rest of the year? I don't know, but I think that's a backfield where it's like, we're, we're maybe a little blind because. On one hand, if you think that there's no room for a second running back on the Giants, then I better look at your roster and I better see massive exposure and correlation to Saquon Barkley smashing. Mm-hmm. But if you're also saying, well, I don't believe in Barkley and I don't, I'm not willing to give up one of these deals we were talking about earlier in the, the show for Barkley, you should be rostering all the backup Giants running backs. It goes hand in hand. Uh, so Corbin, especially, but Matt Breida and Antonio Williams, you know, they both used to be with Dayball on the Bills. So like, I think it that backfield is unsettled, but it's also one where it's like, I want as many of those three as I can get. And you would agree one or two of those guys is going to be dead by the time we get to like week one. Yeah. But I sure. want all, that's one I want to be able to say, oh, okay. They actually kept, you know, Antonio Williams over Deshaun Corbin. So I'll just cut Deshaun Corbin and I'll keep the other two. But I want to be able to make that decision knowing I'm going to take a little bit of a loss, but I also think what I'm gaining because I know I'm going to get right. That's a backfield I want to have all pieces of. So it's kind of like the Colts. Whoever the Colts number three is, I want on my teams. Whoever the hell it's going to be, it's going to be like four or five, one of four or five guys. And we talked about that last show. Uh, The other one, I mean, uh, Treston Ebner is, he's been an interesting one because I've been pumping him up even before the draft. I, I knew of his name, but I really had no clue that I'd ever be rostering him until he got drafted. And then until he got drafted on the Bears, and I'm like, well, that's not like the worst depth chart that you could go to. And they really don't have anything else. So any narrative, and the problem is the current market says Khalil Herbert is an elite elite handcuff, Eric. He's one of the best handcuffs in the league. And I tell you that all the time because he is. Well, okay, but... All I'm saying is, and I'm not saying at all, I don't want any Khalil Herbert. I want Khalil Herbert shares too. Right. But I don't necessarily need to have them on the same team as Tristan Ebner. And the reason I want to run a, want a roster Ebner is because he's a similar profile to Khalil Herbert. Mm-hmm. He's actually a little bit bigger than Khalil Herbert. Mm-hmm. And this regime drafted him. So he's he's literally a guy that, I mean, how many Tristan Ebners? I think I've got them all. I have them on 24 of my 56 teams. But so I think most of our leagues, I've probably gotten him. But where you've gotten him, he's been he's been on the waiver wire, hasn't he? Oh yeah, for sure. He was wasn't drafted at all. And if he was drafted, it was like the fifth round of like the very end of like fourteen team drafts. Like, and how many running backs, even running backs that were UDFA's or UDFA receivers or tight ends or late day three picks have been going over him? Like every draft, right. you, you see Abram Smith going around ahead of Tristan Ebner. You know, Tristan Ebner's going right. to waivers, but Kennedy Brooks and Abram Smith are getting drafted pretty much in every draft. Correct. Yep. So the narrative is just we're 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 stuck a little bit, and it's not that I think Tristan Ebner is good at all or is ever going to be valued anything other than just worth a roster spot. But it's just interesting the psychology of a player like that that nobody was on pre-draft. And we still can't kick that preconceived notion on a player. Well, why the hell did they draft him? Right. Like if, if the chiefs would have drafted 
Jerry and Ely, where the Bears drafted Cheston Ebner, people would be like, oh, I got to I gotta draft that guy. He's not going to go to waivers, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yet, I've seen people pick up Jerry and Ely before they draft Isaiah Pacheco. And it's like, well, they the, the Chiefs drafted one. You know what I mean? Exactly. So it's just this, the preconceived notions of like where these guys were and then what that conflicts with where the teams drafted them or what their teams view on them is different. So I'm interested in a guy like Ebner for that simply because it's going against the grain of what like the mainstream valuation would be on how you look at those guys. Um, I already mentioned Kennedy Brooks. I won't get into Kennedy Brooks much. I'm, I've thought a little more about Kennedy Brooks and I'm like, I like Kennedy Brooks because he's a cheap share of the Eagles backfield. But I also wonder if the Eagles are one of these teams that literally their end of season running back usage will be like 40%, 25%, 15% and then like two or three other guys, 5%. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that just me, that just may be fine with how they're going to deploy it. So I'm not sure if necessarily Kennedy Brooks is, I mean, obviously he got the massive guaranteed deal, which speaks to something that tells me when you give a guy that guaranteed deal, I mean, he got a guaranteed deal. That's more than every sixth and seventh round pick got yeah. in their slot. That tells me they expect this guy to make the team. This is not a guy, hey, we'll give a shot in camp. This is, we see him on the roster. And the Eagles are probably one of those teams we talked about last week that will carry four running backs. Yeah, they usually have. And he got uh, $240,000 guaranteed, which I think is definitely one of the highest in the league. I know. I think it was the highest in the league. The highest, okay. Him, him and Carson Strong, I believe, were the two highest. And it came from the Eagles. Yeah, so, Carson Strong was 320000 so he got yeah. a huge guarantee. So that just tells me that they're almost treating Kennedy Brooks like a fifth round pick or a guy they expect to make the team. Now, whether he ever is fantasy relevant, that's different, but they expect him to make the roster. They, they, they gave him that money as like, oh, we got a free fifth or sixth round pick. Like that's what they would have cost the same amount of money to do that. So I think he's one that if he's out there, you pick him up. And I think it just goes for, here would be my question for you. I want Kennedy Brooks. But do you want all the Eagles backs or what What are your thoughts on that situation? Because you could argue the same thing with the Giants, but I'm not sure if I want to have Boston Scott, Kenneth Gainwell and Kennedy Brooks on the same team. Do you? Yeah, because they just there's just no telling they're going to use all four of them, honestly, at, at some point. But, yeah, I probably don't want to have every single one of them, um, because, but they are going to all be used. So they're worth still rostering, you know. It, but and don't you think Kennedy Brooks is maybe like he's a square where the other three are circles? Like he's a guy they could legitimately say, this is our goal line back. Right. Yeah. He's their Jordan Howard this year. He's playing that role. But I think he's a more patient runner. He can catch the ball a little bit. He he gets a little more than what Jordan Howard does at this point. In his I don't think Jordan Howard's a bad comp, though. That might have been what the Eagles kind of see in him that. You know, this is the prototype that we're now. The thing is, what would be someone like Jordan Howard worth if he was never in a situation where he's not getting every touch? You put Jordan yeah. Howard in a 50 50 committee where he only gets 11 carries, and that's like cuttable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you kind of have to be cognizant of if Kennedy Brooks makes the team, what do you do with him? He's one of the guys where I'm like, if someone will give me a third because he made the team. Yeah. I'll take the third and then I'll use my third on another player that I'm more confident maybe starting during the season. Yep. I agree. And then the last one, I mean, uh, I had Daniel Bellinger in here, but I can just kind of leave this as in the formats where tight ends matter. 
uh, look for just follow the Raz profiles. So Daniel Bellinger fits it. Grant Calcaterra fits it. Uh, Lucas Kroll from the uh, the Saints fits it. Austin Allen also with the Giants fits it. Uh, it's interesting. I hear a lot of these podcasts talking about how the Vikings tight ends are garbage because I'd have to even look at it. Ben Ellefson and one other guy. I can't remember who else is on their depth chart, but it's a blocker. It's a guy that's been around. Look it up for me uh, real quick. They have, they have Johnny Munt, M- Muse, Ben Ellefson, Zach Davidson. Okay. Yes. It's Johnny Munt and Ben Ellefson. And I've heard probably no less than a half a dozen fucking shows going, oh, well, Irv Smith has to smash because those are the other two tight ends. But are those two tight ends that the team is probably even looking at all in the same prototype as Irv Smith? Like the, the, for, for the team, they might as well be a slot receiver and an X receiver. You know, they're, they're not they, they're not the same position. So just because it says tight end, it's just interesting you hear that narrative. So to come full circle, I'm interested in both Zach Davidson and Nick Muse. They have the Raz profiles. Mm-hmm. Just to, one of those guys probably doesn't make the team. I'd say it's probably Zach Davidson is favored because they've held him for a year and he was a draft pick, Mm -hmm. but whichever one of those guys sneaks through and might make the 53 man roster, I'm interested because immediately they could be like the next Tyler Conklin, but a better profile, right? Where it's like all of a sudden, holy shit, this guy's the number two receiving tight end, which is what I would want. And I'm not sold on Irv Smith's profile. We've talked about that. I won't even get into that, but I, If a guy like Zach Davison starts getting snaps, I'm interested. And then, and honestly, it could be Nick Muse too because he was drafted by this new regime, this new GM yep. too. So it could even be Nick Muse. So that that's definitely one we'll have to file away and watch. Yeah, and then again, those are two two players on what I would think is a very ambiguous and kind of like unsettled tight end depth chart. I'm not saying you're going to end up getting another like Dalton Schultz out of this or another George Kittle out of this. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I think you're by having these guys and being able to give it a year or two in the right formats. Like I don't want to hold these guys in a start one, 1. 1.5, but like you get in a couple of our leagues, like run and gun and stuff like I, I'll hold a couple of these guys on my taxi or on my bench. And right. there's a chance that I end up hitting on a usable tight end in a year or two that maybe has a runway to be somebody that, could return some trade value. So I think that's the theory. And that those are, that's just a situation where I'm interested in holding them. Cause they have two, they have two Raz freaks that no one's talking about. So that's it. Those are my NFC guys. Right. Those are a bunch of guys that I've picked up. I know you've picked up me and you battle over these guys on waiver wires for who to pick up. So those are definitely some, some key names to watch out for. And that gets into my last topic with training camps opening up here. You know, what kind of, news are we looking for on these guys you know these guys that end up getting buzzed every single day hey this guy's looking good nick muse is looking good every single day he's getting some reps with the first team as the second tight end stuff like that once you start seeing the news like that and it keeps coming and coming each day and then you see the preseason games maybe and you see this guy does really good those are the kinds of players that you want to start picking up early on like week one week two Especially um, week those week one waiver wires for uh, training camps after the news and all that comes out is definitely really big for me. 
personally because you know I'm looking through all those news, all those notes from all those guys, and if I can pick up those one or two gems that in week two of the preseason everyone in the mainstream's talking about them, but I was on them a week or two beforehand. That's what I want to try and do. That's that's my goal of reading all this news is to be ahead of everybody on picking these guys up. Last year it was KJ Osborne, it was Tony Jones, it was Makai Sargent, Tyson Williams, those types of players last year that I was picking up. You know, and then I could have sold for like a second or a third round pick at some point because the hype was getting so big um, on those guys. So that's kind of what I want to do with those guys. Um, is there anything that you look for, you know, for training camp wise? No, I think it's just stay plugged in on the news. And I, I think you actually nailed this if you go back and, and listen to the first show, if you haven't already. But you kind of nailed it with learning from your mistakes is especially if you're playing a portfolio. and you know, I know you have some players that you have in double figure leagues that you're doing yourself an in, an injustice. If you do not, I don't want to say aggressively shop those guys, but you know, the players that you have a lot of shares of, right. Mm. And if any of those have anything positive, it's worth being proactive in those specific leagues. So any of these guys pops, and I know I have them in 12 leagues, I'm going to spend the 15 minutes spamming for thirds. Like I'm going to be the aggressor. I'm not going to put them on my trade block or post in the chat. Hey, this guy's available because it takes, it takes someone else's effort to go and look at your message or look at your trade block and then go and send the offer. And they're probably looking at it like, well, there's probably 50 players I could buy for my third, but until it's in their inbox, there's some about that psychology of you just got a trade offer Mm -hmm. and it's two seconds away from you having it in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And that's where you can kind of prey on maybe somebody just says, ah, oh, you know what? Screw it. I've heard some good things about this guy or, you know, screw it. This person I follow really likes this profile and now he's getting some buzz. I'll pay a third. And a lot of people go, you know, if they were to post that out in public, they're like, you know, you always see it every year. Oh, I bought this guy for a third and they, they get a victory lap on Twitter. That's a great trade. You didn't, you gave up nothing, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, we're the ones sitting back on the other sides of these deals going, okay, cool. Cool. I got a bunch of extra thirds, not a piss away during the season when I actually can buy something of value in my lineup that week. Right. And that's that. So there is kind of like a give or take relationship here with these types of moves. And you just hope that these types of dynasty players continue to exist year after year after year. I mean, Ray said it in the, the discussion we had yesterday in the, um, in the Heisman group, like there's always going to be people that just want to get their players, right? They like this player and they're willing to give you a draft pick, especially when we're dealing with like third round picks. Right. Cause someone's going to tell them all, oh, Eric, that third round pick has like a 4% hit rate. Mm-hmm. And I'm going like, I don't operate under 4% hit rates on third rounders. Cause you know what, if I have to draft all of them and I'm only hitting on one out of 25 players, I've already pissed away a ton of value. Yeah. I'm using, I'm hoping I can get almost a hundred percent hit rate with my third rounders, meaning I spend them in places where it actually gives me something of value. So yeah, I, I think you have to identify the ones where, you know, you want to sell whatever those prototypes are, whoever those players are. Um, what, what's your process on being aggressive? I mean, I know you, I, I've gotten, I don't think you and I spam each other a lot of times because we know we're not going to take the deals. I see Eric's team and I just skip over that one. Like I know he's not giving me a third for Abram Smith, right? Right. but generally like, are you, are you one that'll sit down and just hammer out a bunch of spam trades? 
Yeah, on certain players, I definitely will. I think last year, like I said, I missed the boat on doing that with Tony Jones and Tyson Williams because I thought, man, Tyson's going to be the starter for the Ravens this year because Dobbins is hurt, Edwards is hurt, Justice Hill got hurt, and they have nobody. And I know at least Tyson, he's got some receiving ability. He's got the, you know, he's the youngest running back there. They didn't have anybody, and then they brought in Latavius, and then I knew Latavius had, was cooked. I'm like, oh man, Tyson's going to be awesome this year. I'm not, I'm not trading him at all. I'm going to ride this free value that I got. When in reality, I should have just traded for him because there's a reason he was a UDFA guy and he was fourth or fifth on the depth chart for like two years, you know, something like that. So these guys that, that gain this quick value like that, if you can just get seconds and thirds or, or whatnot for the player, I'm just going to go ahead and bank that profit. And like Scott said, I can use it during the year. And how do you use it during the year is kind of another question that are, you know, how we should explain it to people. So like last year, Dearness Johnson would get spot starts and Alex Collins would get spot starts um, at running back. Go ahead and trade a random third round pick for one of those guys that you can start for one week or two weeks. You're getting that value in your lineup. And like Dearness Johnson, you picked him up during that Denver game on a Thursday night and Dearness Johnson ran for 140 yards and a touchdown. He was like an RB top 10 that week and he probably won you the week because you you started him and you picked him up that week. So you're kind of looking for those types of running backs. Um you know, trade those guys, get those third round picks, and then you can use in that third round pick during your season to pick up other running backs like that that are going to start for a week or two. So that that's one of the important things that I like to do and, and you like to do as well. Yeah, and it also leads into, we're not going to cover it on this show because we could go another like five hours, but it leads into the theory you just gave, Eric, of buying spot starts for running backs during the season. What type of teams would give you the ability to want to make that move in the season. The ones that were, I'm just piecing together my RB2 basically. So that probably takes some work before the season to set your team up to where you're going to be in a place where you're going to say, okay, that move makes sense for my team. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it goes back to the warp theory. If you're carrying, you know, if you have, we, and, and we talked about this last week, we touched on it real briefly. If you're carrying a bunch of these RB2s on your team, you're going to most likely just play those guys every single week. And you're kind of wasting some value holding them on your roster. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you kind of thin down your running back room to the point where, hey, there's going to be four or five, six weeks during the year where I actually need to buy like one of these desperation Daryl Williams type spot starts. Those are the teams you're going to be more likely to do it. You're going to see more bang for your buck in the immediate future to make that trade versus if you go four deep at running back, it still might be a a good value move to buy the spot start, but you're not going to play the guy. So therefore you're not going to make the trade. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you know, it's going to be hard to actually extract value with that third. You might end up holding those thirds and going, well, shit, I need to make the pick next year. And you really don't want to make a bunch of third round picks unless they're just filler running backs again, right? Like you don't really want to be drafting a lot of players in that range. It's the same with QBs. Like if I have a couple extra QBs and I also have like two really good quarterbacks, I don't necessarily want to hold a guy like Mac Jones as my third quarterback. The only time I'm really banking on using them on that roster is when there's injuries or bye weeks. Mm -hmm. I'm better off saying, okay, there might be four weeks 
this year, the two buys for my starters and maybe a couple injury weeks where I need to plug in that quarterback. But the difference in warp between Mac Jones and Colt McCoy when he started isn't that much. So I'd almost rather, if I build my team that way, bank a couple of the extra picks and I'll buy a spot starter to at quarterback for the same reason. Right. So you're, the, the theory is you, you want to set your team up to where you go, hey, I'm in the season. There might be times where I need to buy a running back or I might need to buy a quarterback. And I want to do it on these cheap ends where I know somebody's always going to be looking to cash out on Trevor Simeon because we know Trevor Simeon's garbage. Mm-hmm. But if he's going to start for three games and you can get him for a third, you want to be the team that goes, okay, that's a good move to make, but I need my team to be set up to where I might actually need that quarterback. A lot of times you don't ever buy those players because it's like, well, I don't need Trevor Simeon. Why would I give you a pick? Mm-hmm. So you're just kind of leaving yourself flexibility, but you're doing that with the way you constructed your team entering the season. And if it goes south and you get hit with a bunch of injuries and you don't have any depth, that's why we play a portfolio, right? Like right. 10% of my teams are just going to get flushed down the toilet within a month. And you know what? Those are the ones that I just direct towards punting for the next year. So you don't even worry about like every team having the perfect amount of depth so you can survive 20, 30% injuries. You just bank on the fact that we have a bunch of teams and some of them are going to survive. And the ones that don't, you start directing in the right direction when you see it happening. So that, that's my diatribe on that. No, that I, I do that too. And I know you do it. You just laid it all out for us. That's perfect. I, you know, speaking of that, if things do go south, if a player does get a season-ending injury, what do you? What is your play usually? So I'll give the example. A couple years ago, Saquon Barkley tore his ACL. You know, what what do you do with him at that point? Or J.K. Dobbins last year tore an ACL and all that. What was your play with those guys as soon as they got hurt? Well, you know, my play on Dobbins and Acres was that any first. Mm-hmm. any first. I know I'm probably losing value two or three years down the road if they fully recover and bounce back. But the value that I'm losing, I then have to eat for three years. Whereas if I can turn those guys into first, I mean, as soon as they went down, you remember, I was just spamming any first. Yep. Any first. G- give me a first. That gives me time while they're healing from their injury where I know it's going to be at least a year for their value to bounce back or close. We thought so with acres. I mean, generally we were wrong that he came back within six months, but yeah, for running backs, I mean, I think if a running back is out for the season, I mean, that's, I don't think there is any running back shy of it being maybe Brees Hall, Javante, Najee, or JT that could suffer a torn ACL tomorrow. And they're worth at least a first. Right. And you can almost argue like if Javante tore his ACL in training camp, he's exactly what Dobbins was. Yeah. So you could even say like, damn, like he's the RB4 or whatever. But if he tore his ACL in training camp, I'm just going to liquidate. I'm out. You you can bet on the player conviction that he comes back. But what was my prediction with Dobbins? Oh, it was just an ACL, Eric. You can come back from an ACL in nine months. And reports are he's probably going to come back for the season. But you're already seeing this bullshit about how, well, he's not going to get a full workload or, oh, they're not sure about him. Mm. That matters. That matters with his value. It's not that whether he can actually come back and perform. Part of the analysis was he's not only losing his second year, he's effectively losing his third year too from like a dynasty asset standpoint. You know, like 
he's going to have this cloud over him for at least half this year until he shows that he doesn't have it anymore. So right. yeah, running backs, I, I, almost any running back that goes down, I'm willing to get out for a first receivers. I mean, I think receivers are just even, even more what we talked about with the warp data. Like if a wide receiver two goes down and you can find a sucker to give you another wide receiver two, you just do it. Right. I mean, I, I, how many of those did you do last year when like Juju went down? Yeah, I think I traded, I mean, ultimately didn't work out that great, but I think I traded Juju straight up for Van Jefferson and Brian Edwards. Yeah, I mean, that it, it didn't work out, but at the time, Edwards was doing pretty good there early on, and Van Jefferson was doing really good early on. Yeah, and I think, it, I mean, you're going to miss on some of those, but I think the process is if you can trade a guy that's a wide receiver two and he suffers a season-ending injury, even for a wide receiver three, mm-hmm. you're still banking the points, you know what I mean? And you're just betting that they both fall in this same warp range where next year, okay, maybe they flip-flop in value. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't really make sense. And I think we need to be more cognizant of that with wide receivers, especially if a guy goes down and like, you know, Devonte Smith, I hate, I hate putting players out there with injuries, mm-hmm. but like Devonte Smith tears his ACL. You're based, you're probably trading him for like every rookie receiver in this year's class that was like in the top seven or eight, right? Like you easily would trade him for like George Pickens. What's the difference at that point? You know? Right. hundred percent. So, but we're never, whenever that injury happens, you hear people, they get way too technical on trying to evaluate the individual player's game. And I think we just zoom out. We're like, oh yeah, that's a wide receiver three and he's 26 years old. Okay. Worst case scenario, he bounces back and he plays again, but he's still a wide receiver three. What did I really lose? Even if I get a zero on the other end. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that even your deal where you traded, I mean, yours was a disaster. Van Jefferson and Brian Edwards. Yeah, now it is, but I mean, early on it was looking wasn't looking that bad because but here's the thing. What did you really lose? You lost Juju, who's who might be like wide receiver twenty five. You know what I mean? Yeah, at best. So it's not like you lost an asset that really okay. You lost point five warp points on your team, Eric. Yeah, you can make that up with one or two other trades that we've just talked about in this entire show. So I think that's a good way right. to sum it up with those. Don't be holding injured players because you already know how the community is going to look at them. Yeah. And, and this goes for, even if you have IR spots too, or would you, Uh, I mean, the IR spot just allows you to pick up a free player on waivers. Mm -hmm. If it's really shallow rosters, then yeah, the value of the player you're picking up on waivers is higher. Right. Right. But some of our leagues, I mean, at 35 man rosters, okay, big, big deal. What value am I picking up off waivers? I think the idea is, especially at receiver, if you can just, if you can pivot and get a receiver that's 80 to 90% of the profile that you traded away, and you can still basically occupy that same slot on your roster without giving up points. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't understand necessarily what the other team is doing and people wised up to this. I remember in 2020, Cortland Sutton tore his ACL and that was before T Higgins broke out literally like week two. Week three, I traded Cortland Sutton for T. Higgins. I mean, in hindsight, that's an example of like, oh my God, that's a horrible trade. You know, last year I traded DJ Chark for Michael Pittman. Those are two examples where just this principle ended up actually netting me a profit. And I was trading away the dude with the torn ACL or the broken ankle. Right. So just 
the idea is explore the trades because you're always betting not against the guy not coming back from the injury. It's almost guaranteed that a guy coming off a significant injury is not going to explode in value for at least another year after they're fully recovered from the injury. Mm-hmm. So you're really not losing much by trading them away. So with, you know, you said there's only a few guys that you think could net a 2023 third if they got injured tomorrow, like Jonathan Taylor, a couple first, you mean? Yeah, first. Now, let's say, you know, someone in the middle of the tier there, let's say Aaron Jones tears his ACL tomorrow. Would you sell for just any 2023 second? If it's one of those guys that's on his second contract, six or seven years in, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think you'd be lucky to get that, quite frankly. Okay. Elijah Mitchell tears his ACL tomorrow. Second, not a first. I mean, I don't think you're getting a first form. I I hate to say it, but would you give up a third for James Robinson right now? No, I don't. No, I just don't like Achilles injuries. So, but wouldn't so wouldn't you feel if Elijah Mitchell had a ACL or even ACLs for running backs are not great? Yeah. Like, wouldn't you kind of feel like you you pulled the wool over someone's eyes if you got a second for an an injured running back that tore his ACL that had no pedigree before? Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Because because here's the thing. Let's say Elijah Mitchell tore his ACL and he bounces back within nine months and he has a miraculous recovery. Mm. What does he have to do to ever be worth a first? Yeah, he's got to get back to being healthy every single week. Is he worth a first today? No, he's not. (laughs) That answers your question. If you can get the second, he literally would have to be like four years of dominance. Yeah. Before he could be worth like a first. And then after the four years, people would be like, oh, he's too old. Right. So there, there's the, your window is just gone. It's unfortunate with the running backs and their shelf life. It's like three to six years. You cannot absorb two years of impacted value because of injury. Right. So, I mean, right. I, I hate to say it, but like if JT were to suffer one of these injuries, I, I think you would struggle to give up a 23 first for him, Eric. Yeah, I think I definitely would. And if you look at him now, he's probably valued as three 2023 first. He tears his ACL. It's down to maybe one 2023 first. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you look at Barkley last year, you know, coming off of the ACL injury, he struggled for like a month before he hurt his ankle in that freak little injury he had there with his ankle. So he was never the same after that. But even then, you know, he still was struggled all year long. So. You know, you almost lose two years of that running back, even though he is playing the second year, probably. You you lose the two years, definitely, from you're not going to get the value bounce back. So if you're right. investing at the price of a 23 first on a guy like Akers last year, it's going to be very hard for you to recover that profit, and you still occupy that roster spot for two seasons. You may never make the profit back. And right. I think that just illustrates how fragile running backs are, even at the very, very top. Right. If so, I told you, would you give up a 23 first for Jonathan Taylor, regardless of the team, and you hesitate, that should illustrate just how fragile of a fucking asset you're holding if you have 20% exposure to Jonathan Taylor. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have 20%, but it should make you think about, damn, if I got a lot of Taylor and one or two of my eight leagues that I have him in, I can cash out for the grandfather deal process just says you just do it and you just bet on the other six teams that you have him you know yep 
and that, that goes back to the conversation I had in the Heisman chat with everybody. Jonathan Taylor, you're getting three first-round values. You just take it. If you look back in history of these players that were va- valued as – you know, oh, they're, they're worth like three picks. The Saquon Barkley's, the McCaffrey's. At one point, Odell Beckham, Juju Smith-Schuster were all like these like three first-round value type picks. In hindsight, you take it every single time. You know, it just – it is what it is. You should, probably should just take that kind of value that you're going to get. So uh, quick what, point before we wrap up. Sure. Chase or Jefferson tears their ACL. Mm-hmm. You're, you'd probably pay a first, right, for those guys? Yeah, I'd probably pay a first. Just because yeah. you've seen, we've seen other receivers come back within like a year, and after two years, they can get almost right back to where they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely would. And okay, same thing with Brees Hall. That was what I was going to ask you. Brees Hall tears his ACL tomorrow. Do you give up a twenty twenty three first for Brees? No. Okay. No. It, it, you, you, I mean, I I hate to wish this. I mean, I almost hate. I feel bad throwing all these player names out there with right. torn ACLs, but right. I no, especially twenty twenty three. Yeah, do you really? If you only have one twenty three first in your league, do you want to blow it on a running back with a fucking bum knee? Right. And so, if somebody's not willing to give you the twenty twenty three first because they're valued so highly, mm-hmm. would you just take any twenty twenty four first? Maybe you can trim off a couple players that you wouldn't, you'd need a 23, but I think largely the same principle applies. Yeah. Okay. If it's, if it's not one of the top, you know, I think you would, you would definitely struggle to get the 23 first for like Javante. Right. You know, like I, I, so if that's the best you can get, I mean, you have to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I'd probably say, okay, I have Brees in five leagues. I'll trade him away in the ones I can get the 23 and the ones I can only get the 24 then I'd need at least like a 23 second on top. And if I can't get that, then those are the ones I'm just forced to hold. Right. But I would definitely be looking at it across my portfolio saying, man, the ones I can get the 23 first, I just take it. Right. And I'll bet that it's maybe one at one or two out of five. And that kind of alleviates some of the inflexibility that I have on my team. So that's a, that's a good question. I, yeah. I want to kind of erase these injury thoughts though. Cause that's depressing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But no, that was a good discussion. And then last but not least, my favorite uh, new segment that I made, <laughs> it's called your favorite. So last week we did your favorite football team. We went over that. So this week I'm going to do your favorite football player. So who is either growing up or right now, who, whatever you want to do, who's your favorite football player? Man, favorite football player. I got to think on that because there's a couple that come to mind immediately, but I'll let you go right. first. Sure. Well, you already know mine. Mine was Donovan McNabb, quarterback for the Eagles. You know, growing up, you know, pretty much through elementary school, middle school, high school, that that was my guy. The Eagles were my team. Man, just watching him at Syracuse and then going to the Eagles and just he really took the league by storm there in 99-2000. He was the first I don't want to say the first rushing quarterback because Randall Cunningham was obviously um, with the Eagles before then, but he was like the new school running quarterback who could throw the ball pretty decently as well. I mean, they never really gave him the weapons until Terrell Owens finally came over, but once McNabb just started rolling, man, he he was the Michael Vick before Michael Vick. And then obviously Vick came in and took it to another level rushing the ball, but people forget how good McNabb was as a rusher beforehand. And then obviously going to all those NFC championship games, four straight NFC championship games, you know, obviously 
you know, we, we know they had the losses and whatnot and only made it to one Super Bowl, but man, he, he was just God to me. He, he still is. I, I just absolutely love that guy. He's a good dude, despite what, you know, people think of his play in the Super Bowl and whatnot. Um, now father time didn't do him any, you know, any good when he went to Washington, he went to Minnesota, you know, it, those are just fragile memories of, you know, what he used to be. But, you know, when he was with the Eagles and when he was rolling him and Andy Reed and Brian Westbrook and Owens and all those guys, man, they, they were just one of the most fun teams in the league to play with. And I, and then like Madden, everyone's growing up playing Madden and stuff too. So they, those guys were always so much fun to play with on Madden. So easily Donovan McNabb, my favorite player. What about you, Scott? Well, I have a couple that come to mind. First, it's got to be Rico Gathers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, <laughs> not Rico Gathers. I would say, so there's two. Growing up, I always used to love uh, Chris Warren, the Seahawks running back. And it was part of the infatuation when you know, his son came in the league and you're kind of like, you know, this is a guy that uh, I'm infatuated with trying to make become a thing. But I'll I'll say it's got to be probably Chad Johnson because he was the first like real star of my lifetime that the Bengals have had to where like he was one of the guys where like you had to talk about him uh, across the league. You know, he was one of the first like national stars I can remember. The Bengals had some stars when I was young, like in the 80s. They had some stars. The 90s were really decrepit. I mean, Jeff Blake was like a star to me when I was a child. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff Blake played when I was like a teenager, a little bit. I was a little bit younger than a teenager the at the same, time. Same, or no, he was a couple years before McNabb. Achilles Smith was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Achilles Smith was that. That's not a good reminder. But <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, the, I would say Ocho Cinco because that was kind of like the, I mean, he was there Marvin Lewis his first year. Yep. And it was like, oh, wow. I mean, the, the People don't understand the Bengals didn't have a good team for like 12 years until then. I mean, they were awful. And so like them actually being on, this was back when they didn't have games on national television as much. There was only like one or two games a week. And like, I never watched the Bengals play because they would just put other games on. They didn't even play them on local TV. They were that bad. Well, you were in Columbus, so they probably played Browns games more than they did Bengals. Yeah, yeah, but they, I mean, they would play, there were times where they just wouldn't even play them. They would yeah. put on like the national game instead. Right. Like if it was like, you know, Dallas and the Chiefs, they would just put that on regardless of if the Bengals were playing in a game in the same, same slot. Right. So just being able to like watch them every weekend. And I remember looking forward to like those first season or two with Marvin Lewis's first year, they went eight and eight. They didn't make the playoffs, but you were like, damn, every week it was like must watch games. It was always looking forward to like, are they on TV this week? And this was before like red zone and, you know, but the the access wasn't the same. So I would just say Ocho Cinco and just for like a six year period, you know, he was one of the top like three, four receivers in the league. And then, you know, we all know how his career kind of ended, but I would say he was the first one that really put. Like, I truly think that right now they're debating like who to put in the Bengals Hall of Fame. And he Mm -hmm. wasn't one of the first couple that were chosen. Mm -hmm. But man, like a lot of the Bengals fans that exist today that are, you know, between age 25 and 45, like that would be their Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like that would be the guy they'd say like he meant more to the franchise in terms of like actually giving them some sort of national recognition than anybody else. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say him. 
Yeah, because I I would say the Bengals turned around really once once they got Carson Palmer and then Marvin Lewis came in. That's probably when it turned around. And then obviously they got Chad, they got Hushmanzada. You know, Rudy Johnson was a big deal there for a little bit. So yeah, that's that's probably when they started turning around. I think was it 2004 was when they were when made the playoffs. Is that about the right time? 2003, yeah. 2004. Yeah. So yep. they were they were like. They were the it team to watch. You know, obviously you had the Colts and Peyton Manning doing his thing, Tom Brady and the Patriots doing their thing. But like the Bengals were like the new kids on the block. They were just so fun to watch with Hushmanzada and Chad Johnson, Rudy Johnson, Odell Thurman. A lot of people will know from defense. That guy was like an absolute missile, but a complete train wreck off the field. So yeah, I I you know because you were a Bengals fan, I I followed them a little bit and and I kind of got the the Bengals fever there for a little bit. I was you know really excited to watch those guys too. So th- those are definitely good picks. Yeah, we always hear about the uh, the Kima von Olhoffen man. That that was a team that could have gotten hot and and won the title. That's the only Bengals team I remember in my lifetime, probably even more so than last year, where they had an offense that was. Uh, it was different. There's like 10 offenses like that now, you know, but they had an yeah. offense where it was like that in, in any given short stretch uh, could have made some noise. So we'll let bygones be bygones. Yeah, no, that was good stuff though, but I appreciate you again, Scott. Thanks for doing this uh, with me again. That was episode two. Uh, I am at Eric Vanek NFL on Twitter. If you guys want to follow me and also the show is at America's game pod on Twitter, follow us there as well. I'll be posting up uh, that warp data for you as well under the uh, tweet for under the America's game pod account. If you wanted to see that, but Scott, go ahead and uh, close out with what you got. Yep. Another episode in the books. Find me at Charles chill FFB uh, dynasty and chill is my flagship podcast. Uh, a bunch of other projects. Just check the Twitter bio uh, again at Charles Chill FFB for some of my other content. So good stuff, Eric. Yeah, awesome. We'll see you guys next week. Um, we do have some plans for some other things that we might do. Uh, maybe we might be doing like a uh, a two hour podcast coming up here. Maybe next week or the week after coming up. So I won't give the details away too much on that. I kind of want to leave that in the bag, but there might be a nice little podcast. I think you guys will appreciate it's going to be a lot with uh roster construction and we'll be doing it for you live so we'll see what you guys think of that i think everybody will like it so hope you guys enjoyed and we'll see you guys next week